My name is Laura Max Rose, and I have two girls and two very full hands. Parenting is one of the most intense, rewarding, and all-consuming adventures I've ever been on. And wherever you are in your journey, you're not alone. This podcast is where I ask all of my parenting questions and share the answers I find with you. We're all in this together, and I'm so glad you're here. Sit back, relax. You're listening to Look Ma No Hands. Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands. I am here today with the one and only Dr. Elizabeth Miller, who I like to refer to as our in-house psychologist here at Look Ma No Hands. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Miller. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited about what we're going to chat about today. This is something I have wanted to talk about really honestly since I started this podcast. I don't know how I haven't had this conversation yet, but I was lucky enough to have somebody reach out to me recently and request this topic. It's been on my mind a lot as I think about making this podcast something that contains information that really anybody can utilize, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what your situation is, whether you're married, divorced, whatever it is, something on here I I hope can help you. Um, I've been thinking more about this topic. We get this advice constantly um, when we're married in a relationship um, with our significant other and we have children. This was the first thing anybody told me when I got pregnant with my first was make sure to prioritize your marriage. And the way to do that is to schedule date night, schedule trips together, um, you know, do things with just each other. Like don't forget about the romance and date night I find is like the biggest um, piece of advice that's pushed on every social media platform that I read. And, and as I, you know, when I first had, when I first had Selma, um, I took this advice really excitedly. I I was newly married. I very much did not want to lose. I was 27 years old and did not want to lose the time and, um, enjoyment that I had with just my husband. So I uh, sort of immediately like kind of got us into this like date night routine, which was amazing. Right. But as we got older and we had another child, now I'm pregnant again. Um, not only did I become more aware of like how absolutely difficult that can be, first of all, from a time perspective, as you maybe have more children, but also from a financial perspective, Um, if you don't have anybody around you that you trust, if you don't have family members around you that you trust, or you can't hire a babysitter, um, this can be really impossible for a lot of people. And it's also not a a blanket solution for any conflict that you may experience, um, having a new child. This is one of the biggest stressors that can happen to a couple is having a new baby. I started to get really irritated with this advice. Um, especially as I took it even further and I've gone on several vacations with just my husband and my favorite, some of my favorite times in my life are these trips that we've taken just the two of us without our kids. But I am acutely aware of how difficult it has been to do that, um, to find people to help us to make that happen, how expensive it is. Um, I'm not about to come on here and say, you know, here's, here's what you've got to do. Like go to Hawaii for two weeks with your husband and like have the best time. I mean, I am, I am very aware that that is not an option. Um, for many of us. And, you know, when I get home from Hawaii and life is happening again in front of me, what are the things that I can do to make our relationship better the way that it is every single day? When we have our kids around us, when we are in the thick of our lives, because that's real life. And like these vacations, these trips, they can be amazing and they can remind us of how much we absolutely love each other when none of those things are around. But what about the day-to-day? And um, so many of us are in that day-to-day all the time. There are no breaks. 
Um, and we find ourselves especially stressed out. Um, we're going to talk a lot about um, Dr. Gottman's theory of theories about marriage and relationships today on this show. And one of the things that he says is that 60% of um, married people find themselves um, more dissatisfied with their partner in the three years after they give birth to a child. And, you know, is there, is that an avoidable statistic? How do we avoid feeling this sort of discontent with our spouse and have a harmonious relationship with them while having and taking care of children? So let's just start from the beginning. Um, let's start with that date night advice. If date night is not an option for us, if we can't go on some vacation with our spouse, um, what are ways every day that we can really connect with our partner? That's a really good question. Um, as a mom of two myself, I know the the struggle that it can be to, you know, connect with our partner after these babies arrive earthside. Um, but the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear that question is we need to dial it back. Um, you know, it's when we have a child, we are learning who we are again. You know, part of our old selves, um, you know, are no longer with us. And we have this new being that is integrating into our lives. And so my first thing that comes to mind when I hear that is how do I feel loved? Uh, how does my partner feel loved? And what we're really talking about there is talking about the love languages. You know, great. So the, this is the five love languages, which is Gary. What is the author's name? Gary. Um, oh gosh, of course. Um, That's okay. <laughs> the five love languages. You've probably heard of it by now. My favorite joke is Gary like, Chapman. Gary Chapman. Okay. Whenever Ben, <laughs> whenever we'll like, Ben will do something nice for me. I'm like, oh, acts of service. One of my top five love languages. I mean, I can never pick which one of the five is actually mine. I'm pretty sure it's words of affirmation. And then maybe quality time. But um, oh my gosh, that's funny. So tell us why it's so. What what are the five love languages, and why is it so important to know what yours is? Sure. So a little trick to know what your love languages is typically how do you give love? We typically give love in the way we want to receive it. So the five love languages are include quality time, gifts, acts of service, touch, and words of affirmation. So for someone who has very low quality time on their list. So for example, maybe the words of affirmation and touch are their top and quality time comes in last. Date night might not even be a great way to fill our emotional and relationship cup. Um, Interesting. So if we're someone, and I can just give you a couple examples of which, you know, each, what each of these are. So quality time is spending quality time together, spending time uninterrupted, whether that's with our families, um, our kids, or just each other. Gifts would, of course, be, they don't have to be extravagant gifts. It could include just, hey, you know, I saw this today and I thought about you and I really wanted you to have this. Acts of service are doing things. So my husband's love language is act of service and he makes me a coffee every single morning. Oh, um, that's so sweet. Yeah. And touch is, it does not have to be sex. Touch can be anything from holding hands. It can be snuggling. It can be, you know, just being in the presence of one another um, in the context of marriage or couples, I should say, um, that could be giving each other massages or even just, you know, touching a shoulder when you, you know, come home and giving it a, a warm embrace when we walk in the door. Um, so would you say that your husband's love language is acts of service and he makes you the coffee or that that's yours? Yes. No. Okay. His love language is acts of service, which is why, you know, I presented the questions of how do I feel loved and how does our partner feel loved? Yeah. 
acts of service is not my top. Um, so but, when you get that coffee, it's like, it's nice, but it's not like the thing for you. It's not the thing, but yeah. I know that he is going out of his way showing me love because that is one of his top love languages. Um, my top love language is quality time. And I yeah. would argue that his is as well. I love and so that. So we do align on that. So but- let, let's talk about, let's back up even further here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about like, we've had maybe a new baby. This is on my mind right now because I've gone through the newborn stage with my husband twice and I'm about to do it again. Um, it's known uh, universally as probably one of the hardest, most stressful times that a couple goes through. Um, what about like when you're, you're in, a, you're in such a place of frustration, resentment, exhaustion, that none of this stuff even feels like accessible to you. Um, <laughs> things are raw. Um, we are surrounded. Um, it is very difficult to access the part of us that might want to make a cup of coffee for our spouse or even to have that conversation, um, with them. Like where, where do we start when our tanks are, are emptier than normal? I think that's a great question. I think it's a two part question because if we're in the stage of trying to conceive or we're pregnant currently, I think we can do a lot of things to fill our emotional bank account or our emotional cup with our partners. So getting to know our love languages, getting to know our partner's love languages and recognizing when they're happening, right? Recognizing when our partners are making a bid for connection. If we can, you know, the goal, you you spoke about Gottman. And one of the things that Gottman says is in order for something to be sustainable, we need to have a five to one ratio. So we need to have five positive interactions or experiences to one negative. And those include the small things. So in the newborn stage, when baby, you know, plops itself into our lives and we take that precious little thing home um, and we are just completely depleted, right? As a mom, both of my postpartum periods, I remember being depleted emotionally, physically, energetically, all of it. I had nothing left to give outside of the context of keeping this little human alive. Um, it's really important to remember that the more we can do prior, the better. But if we're already in a state where we're depleted, we're exhausted, baby's here, the best thing we can do is remind ourselves that this season is temporary and not make it worse. So I love that. So important. So instead of just losing it over and over and over, maybe that means sitting down and actually talking to our partners about how depleted we actually feel. Right. We can get a lot of connection off of just sitting with each other, allowing ourselves to just be honest with where we are. We're going to have a lot more empathy for ourselves. We're going to have a lot more empathy for our partners if we can sit back and just be honest about where we are. More often than not, what I find is that when we are honest with ourselves and we're honest with our partners, especially in that newborn stage, our partners will look back at us and say, you know what? I don't expect what you think I'm expecting. I don't expect from you what you're thinking. Oh, yeah. It's so often a projection. It's so often a projection. And knowing that it's temporary that you're that you feel this way is one of those things i think especially for first time mothers like we've never been through this before we don't really know that it's temporary it feels very real and like is this the way things are always going to be is this what it's like to have children i feel like the first thing i say to my friends when they become first time moms is like 
this is not how you are always going to feel. Even if you're on like a bliss cloud right now and things are pretty good, um, this exhaustion that you have, this frustration that you have, this is not the norm. And this is a season of life. This is not the way that it always is. Knowing that is such a valuable tool to have. Of course. And also remembering that all or nothing thinking shows us that we're in survival mode. I don't know one new mom that doesn't go into survival mode um, after delivering their baby and having this <laughs> newborn. And all so, all or nothing thinking is proof that we're in survival mode. I love that. So, tell me what all or nothing thinking is. So, a common all or nothing thought after having a baby is it will always be this way. Mm, yeah. And so totally. that gets us stuck in almost continuing to fret or to have anxiety about where we are. Instead of saying, right now, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Right now, you know, taking it back to very primal um, sense of motherhood, I'm very hungry. Yes. And asking, hey, would you please make me a meal? Would you please bring me food? Um, but, you know, it's you're not always going to not have time to pee. You know, you're not always going to be. These basic needs are not getting met. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> right. And so we're going to be able to overcome this season. We are going to be able to get through it. I think, you know, something that I talk often about, too, is this expectation that early motherhood is supposed to be bliss. Mm. Um, it's not. And it's not no. what is presented on social media. You know, it's not the highlight reel. New, having a newborn is extremely primal. And I think that can be very triggering for a lot of people, especially if we resonate with trying to be in control. Oh, and yeah. There's no control there, is there? No. And so reminding ourselves that, you know, there are parts of this that we can control. I can control if I eat today or not. I can control if I ask my husband to watch the baby while I take a quick shower. Um, I can control, you know, bringing in my community and asking for help. I cannot control whether this baby, you know, is on a schedule. I cannot control whether this baby is going to sleep through the night. I can't control a lot of things, but focusing on the things that we can control and talking with our partners about that can be vital um, because that feeling of just complete, utter lack of control can also throw us into survival mode. And then of course, send us into black and white thinking. So now all of a sudden we're in deeper conflict with our partners. So as we progress, as our little babies become older, they become toddlers, they become children, maybe we have more of them and our lives are really more about our kids. And this time that we maybe had for each other before certainly does not exist in the way that it is, did before, if at all. Um, I want to go back to what you're, you were saying about these actions that we take every day being in many ways more important than these events like date night and vacations that we may schedule with each other. I don't think... Um, the narrative around, um, you know, sp about around spousal relationships really focuses on that. But you're saying that like the key is really these daily actions that we take for each other. What besides the cup of coffee? I love that visual. Tell me about some of the actions that we can take, even just praising like the little things that our partner does for us every day, even if it feels hard or weird, like, why am I going to thank you for like putting the toilet seat down or whatever it is? What are the little things that we can do every day that can really nurture that sense of kindness so that we have that five to one ratio of positive interactions versus negative interactions? That's a great question. And I have a saying that I live by and I share with my clients often is that what we put our attention to grows. Mm. So what you focus on grows. I love that. I love that. Correct. And so 
yes, kids take a lot of our attention. However, I would like to still be in my marriage once my kids go away. <laughs> yes, um, amen. They, they leave the house. And so focusing on the things that you that help you feel connected to your partner. You use the analogy of the toilet seat. Sure. Hey, you know, I love that you did that. The second we praise something or the second we bring attention to something, it will continue to happen. Right. So maybe your love language is acts of service, for example, and maybe like, you know, your partner is, has it, has a different love language, but that one time they put the laundry in the bin or do something like specifically because it would be something that would make you happy. Certainly not something for them to go out of your way and say, Hey, I noticed you did that. Noticing them. Like we notice our children. Hey, Selma, I noticed you helping Violet use the bathroom. That was awesome. Yeah. And you're going to see more of that. All of a sudden later that day, she's probably going to do that even more and say, hey, mommy, look, I did it again. Um, Adults do that too, sometimes without such outward expression. But a good example, you know, one of the ones that I really like to talk about is touch, because I think we often associate touch with having to have sex. And unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever way you want to put it, um, after having a baby, we, that is something that's completely off the table. And so if our love language is touch, for example, how do we find connection with our partners in that postpartum period? Um, and, you know, for moms who have had birth trauma or a difficult recovery, that could even be a longer period of time. And so if couples have heavily relied on that to feel connected, now all of a sudden, you know, they may need to come in after work and just embrace their partner and say, you know, I really missed you today. I'm so grateful we're here together. Maybe that looks like, you know, the second baby's put down or maybe the whole family sits down on the couch and we have closeness um, and talk about our day. Or maybe we don't. Maybe we just sit with each other and allow each other just to be with each other in the presence Um, quality time, you know, I think one of the things that I like to bring up is this idea of triangulation. Um, Mm. in our world, there are so many distractions and so it can be very difficult to connect with our partner, even if we're trying to. So for example, you know, triangulation is the idea that energy is dispersed to a third party. So that could mean watching TV. That could mean our children could be the triangulation. Um, And so if our love language specifically is quality time, then it's going to be very important that when we are in the same space, even if that's for 30 seconds, we're turning toward each other, we're looking at each other, and we're actually, you know, actively listening to our partner. What I'm hearing you say repeatedly is active effort, that none of this is happening passively, that when we have this new baby, right, we read all about like sleep training or like, you know, routine, like all these things that we need to learn about to have a newborn child. Um, But I, I always joked, like when my first was born, I had like this absolutely like perfect nursery and all of her clothes and like she didn't care. And guess who was totally unprepared for having a new baby? Guess who didn't have the things that I needed in order? to feel okay when that baby was born, me, because that wasn't what any of the books were talking to me about. And I didn't think I was going to need all this stuff that I needed in order to feel like a whole person. Um, and I think it's kind of the same when it comes to our marriage, like our marriage or our, or, or our relationship with our partner. If we have one, when we have children is such a cornerstone of having this strong, healthy family, which again, serves our children, right? But it's not what we read about. And and everything I'm hearing you say is, you know, this is a very active effort. This is something that's like, that's like having a baby. 
it's an active effort. It's something to be thought about every day. Exactly. And so I think that goes back to this idea of making your life work for you too. Um, you know, having the nursery ready is a very new phenomena in our society. <laughs> and I really think it's fueled Thank by you, Pinterest. Yeah. Right? Pinterest, Instagram. I mean, you name it. Yeah. Um, I had no clothes that fit me after my child was born, but by God, she had like the perfect little crib <laughs> and all that stuff. And I, and I had to, my mom had to go out and buy like size 11 men's flip-flops for me to wear to my first doctor's appointment. Cause I didn't know my feet were going to be that swollen. Um, exactly. Going to that, like I didn't have any of that stuff. I was just like basically naked until somebody clothed me because I had nothing. I wasn't thinking like, oh yeah, my maternity clothes aren't going to fit me and my other clothes aren't going to fit me either. I'm going to be somewhere in the middle. Of course. Um, and we don't now, like, you know, I focus so much more on that, but I've had practice. So anyway, go ahead. Of course. And so I think going back to, you know, the first question you asked of what are the small things we can do? A lot of these things don't take a ton of energy. Of course, if you are in a completely depleted state, you may need to just nourish yourself. Mm, the postpartum right. okay. period is a great time to sit down with our partners and be honest about where we are and say things like, I don't have anything to give right this moment. I'm working toward it. And I'm working toward it by taking care of myself. So like I shared with you before, my top love language is quality time. That's with my partner, but also with myself. Mm, so I, I have to take some time to recharge, to you know, process my day. I, I need that time. And so I make that request with my partner and say, hey, you know, I really want to connect with you. I know we've been missing the mark lately, especially in the midst of newborn life. Let's you know, I'm going to go take some time to myself and maybe after the baby goes to bed, we could take some like five minutes and, you know, just, just face each other and actively listen to each other and talk about our day. So let's get into conflict, which for many of us was not modeled appropriately when we were coming of age. I talk to the, I talk about this with my friends a lot, with other mothers a lot. Um, I think a lot of us had the experience of maybe never seeing our parents argue because it was stigmatized and they they hid it from us completely. Or on the other end of the spectrum, we saw our parents argue so aggressively and it was so painful for us that we would do anything to avoid it. And now we do everything we can not to show our children um, when there is conflict between us and our partner or spouse. I was talking to you yesterday um, off the record, off the recording, and you were actually saying that it, it can be hurtful to try to hide um, conflict in front of our children. It's actually the opposite of helpful, um, not to show them what it looks like to um, work out a conflict because when two people come together in a marriage or a partnership, guess what? There's going to be conflict. And so many of us just want to run from it or avoid it. And even if we don't, we don't really know what it looks like to have healthy conflict negotiation with our partner or spouse. So um, you were saying that like low level conflicts between couples um, does not necessarily indicate marital happiness or sustainability. Tell me a little bit more about that and about what it looks like to navigate conflict when we have children in tow. Sure. So one of the things that Gottman talks about is, like I had mentioned previously, was that we need to do our best to maintain a five to one ratio of positive interactions versus negative interactions. So if we are having about five positive interactions and that can be, that can include conflict with conflict resolution or conflict with a repair. 
So sometimes we can, you know, get triggered by something and our partner goes, oh my gosh, you were triggered by that. And I noticed that let's do it differently next time. That could actually be a positive interaction. So it's where- a positive interaction. If we have this sort of like disagreement with our spouse and then it's repaired, that could be considered positive. What is a negative interaction? A classic example of a negative interaction is when partner A brings something up and partner B does not tune into it, does not lean into it, instead gets defensive, stonewalls, um, you know, gets frustrated by it, you know, lack of empathy in the moment. Um, Maybe partner B is also triggered and struggles with even responding in general. So a, a, a a negative interaction per Gottman would be something like that, where we walk away and we feel more depleted than when we went in. Okay. So these low level conflicts that we have, um, even you were saying um, before, high level conflicts, it doesn't necessarily indicate marital happiness or sustainability. So um, what, can you give us an example of that and what it looks like for those types of conflicts to actually serve a stronger partnership and even help our kids if our kids happen to be present? Sure. So it's a myth that if you don't fight, your marriage is going to be happy, just like you said. You know, there are couples who have high, intense, passionate arguments and also have high, intense, passionate, um, you know, makeups and repairs. That is totally acceptable. You know, the caveat to all of this, of course, is if someone is in an abusive, emotionally abusive, physically abusive relationship, then none of this matters. You know, at that point, it's really important to pull in a professional to help you navigate that situation. But for general topics, you know, that we're talking about here, it's really important to remember that when two people come together, there will be conflict of some kind. We are everyone who We are everyone we've been up until today. So in every interaction, we are bringing with us our past selves Mm. and we're bringing with us our triggers. And so as we get to step, as we get to know our partners and as we step into our relationship further and in in a more authentic way, we're going to start to pick up on, hey, you know, this interaction was triggering probably because of something else. And when we sit and talk about it, um, we can get a lot further And so the example that I like to give of that is, you know, are we really talking about the content? Are we talking about, you know, you didn't take out the trash or are we talking about the context, right? The theme, right? I'm triggered that you didn't take out the trash because I don't feel seen right now in this newborn stage. And I feel very alone in trying to keep this house going while keeping this, you know, new precious little human alive. And so I think- You're talking about the feeling behind the trigger. Right. So if we can work within the context of conflict with the actual themes that go on, a majority of a majority of conflict or a majority of fights we have are typically about perpetual problems. An example, I'm someone who is typically, you know, runs a little bit late. My husband's a stickler for time. That's not going to change. However, we can come to agreements on how to work through things a little bit better and become more flexible with each other and identify, hey, this is really important to him, so I'm going to be there on time. Does this fall in line with a statistic you were sharing with me about the percentage of meritable dis- disputes or disagreements that are actually unresolvable? What is that? What is that number again? So Gottman says that 90% of marital conflict is perpetual, meaning that it's about a theme that's not going to go away. Like being late when your partner is perpetually on time. Correct. Okay. But what can you change about that scenario is how, what you can change about that scenario is how you treat each other in that situation. And how we act, act actively listen to each other. 
So oftentimes in conflict, we're not actually trying to solve anything. And most of the time, things don't need to be solved. Most of the times we're looking for connection from our partner. And these are the, these are the reasons that getting to know our partner is so vital here. Because if it's super important for you know, someone to feel heard, then it's going to be very important for partner B to look at them and say, you know what, I'm here with you. This is really hard. I understand there's no way to kind of fix this. And I understand you're not asking me to fix it. I just want you to know I'm here for you and I'm here to support you and I'm on your team. I really love this because for me, this is freedom. I think that just like we weren't necessarily modeled how to resolve conflict, um, many of us, I think also when you have this sort of non, when you have this issue with your spouse where you're so different in such a big way, um, I know what was modeled for me is that like those things are irreconcilable. And like, if you're different in that way, then it just ain't going to work. And um, that's actually the opposite of the truth. There is freedom and understanding that like, okay, my spouse runs late all the time. I like to be early. And guess what? That's okay. Um, We can work together on this to like hear each other out and do something that makes both of us feel heard and seen in this partnership where neither of us need to be somebody else. Exactly. And I think that's where this flexibility comes in and knowing our partner, you know, we, um, had a bar mitzvah this weekend and my husband said, you know, it's really important for us to be here. I mean, we were participating in the bar mitzvah. And so my husband said, you know, it's really important for us to be here at this time. And you know what? I made it a priority. Um, I didn't, I, I put extra emotional effort into making sure that that happened because he made that request and he knows that part of me gets distracted when we're trying to get out the door with two kids. As opposed to expecting you to be somebody that you're not, which is somebody who's just going to show up on time no matter what, which is sort of like this premeditated resentment. Exactly. Yeah. So he knows you well enough to know that like he's going to need to tell you that in advance. I think like, you know, many people are kind of like waiting for that change to happen. Um, for me, that was like defined like early marriage for me is like, oh, I'm just going to like keep doing the same thing over and over again. And like, eventually you're going to catch on that like you should be on time places. Um, no, like <laughs> this is how you are. And if something is really important to me, I'm going to have to say something about it um, in advance, specifically, just like your husband did with the bar mitzvah. Exactly. And, you know, that goes back to modeling for our kids. You know, you asked me, about modeling is essentially what you were asking is, you know, how do I have conflict with my partner in front of my children? Which takes me to one of my core values is that I personally believe my job is to not make my children happy. I believe my job as a parent is to help my children regulate and help them learn how to navigate the world that we live in. So for example, when two people come together, there's conflict. There's conflict on the playground all the time. Of course, they have conflict with each other. Correct. And as they get older, the issues, conflict will remain the same, but issues will evolve and change. And as we get older, the consequences of handling conflict um, in a way that's not appropriate or um, effective will really affect my children. So while maybe it makes sense that my, you know, 20-month-old will push a friend when they're unhappy, that would be completely unacceptable for an adult to do or even maybe an older child. Right. Um, And so helping my children navigate conflict in a way that's healthy is super vital. And so that might mean something different for a two-year-old versus a 10-year-old. But even my four-year-old, you know, I was in a conflict with my husband the other day in the car and we were having a disagreement. and 
my daughter in the back was like, mommy, daddy, you know, what's going on? I feel, I feel overwhelmed. Like, what are you guys talking about? And we stopped our conflict. We looked at each other and we said, okay, we need to address this. So we re-regulated ourselves and I turned around and I said, you know, mommy and daddy are are disagreeing about something and we're trying to come to an idea we're trying to come to a solution and we're trying to, you know, really hear each other out. And my daughter goes, Oh, okay. Well, what if you guys just asked each other questions? I love this. And I yeah. said, you know what? That's actually a really good idea. Um, both of us were stuck in our trauma minds in that moment. And right. it was like, you know what? That's a great idea. And I started asking my husband some questions. He started asking me questions. And we didn't come to a resolution because these are just, it was just about a topic that's not solvable. Um, but what we did come to is a full understanding of why this topic or this particular topic we were arguing about was so triggering for both of us, um, which led to really a wonderful conversation about our own childhoods, right? We, we both have childhood trauma um, that, you know, we've actively worked to resolve um, and work through, but it was like, you know what, I need to share a story with you about my childhood and, I said the same. And we're like, oh my gosh, we're actually getting somewhere here. We're understanding each other. We're getting to know each other. And so I think that's just a prime example of when we're in the presence of our children, of course, you know, cussing and name calling and um, stonewalling is not a great way to do that. But if we are using things like helpful comments, we are asking questions, we're being curious, you know, we're stating I feel and I need statements, right? In that conflict, I said, you know, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I need a minute to process. That's super healthy for kids to see. And my husband responded with, you know what, you're right. I, I'm feeling, you know, angry or sad or whatever it might be in the moment. And I need time to process this. My husband is an internal processor. I'm much more likely to process out loud. Um, and so just in that conflict, we were able to co-regulate with each other, regulate ourselves and co-regulate with our kids while talking about deep things in a developmentally appropriate way. Um, and so I feel very confident that when my kids are on the playground or in an adult relationship one day, they're also going to be able to identify, first of all, be aware of what's going on in their body, right? Like, I think at one point I said, you know, my heart's racing. I feel really triggered. Um, I and make I feel statements and I need statements about what they actually need so they can talk about the theme or the context about what's going on instead of just continuing to stay in an argument that's clearly never going to go anywhere. Well, what I love about this, it reminds me so much of this conversation that I had recently with Lamie Heller on this podcast about sibling rivalry. Honestly, like one of the most life-changing conversations I've ever had if you haven't listened to it yet. And it's all about how normal conflict is between two people and that we need to start from understanding that conflict between siblings is going to occur as opposed from starting with the destructive place many of us start from, which is conflict isn't normal. I need to stop it from happening. So, so many of us, you know, grow up, our parents are afraid of us getting into conflict with our um, siblings and they're trying to stop it. And we kind of learn subconsciously that conflict is bad. So when we flipped that, when we flipped that around, when I treat my children, like conflict between them is actually normal. I'm not coming from this urgent place of trying to stop it. Um, I can also see that in my own marriage. And instead of like constantly fighting this thing from happening or trying to hide it, I'm taking this opportunity to show my children what I would like them to do with each other eventually. Um, Here, I'm going to show you how a regulated adult resolves a conflict because otherwise, how are they going to know, right? Exactly. And to add on to that, I'm going to show my children how an unregulated adult becomes regulated. 
Amen, because I'm (laughs) certainly not going to be a regulated adult all the time or even close. But yes, how many times have I narrated out loud? You know, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm really upset right now. Um, This is what's going on for me. I need to take a break. I'm going to walk away um, and then I'm going to come back. Um, I also, because I've been reading a lot of like Gottman's work lately in preparation for this interview, um, you know, I, I love what he says about, you know, these rules of, I don't know, I don't think he calls them the rules of fair fighting necessarily. That's somebody else, but these sort of rules of engaging in conflict with our spouse. And that one of them is like, if you need to take a break, that's fine, but tell your spouse when you're going to come back and that you're going to come back. And I love that because I, I do that like with my children. I think it's so important um, to just narrate that, um, because as we'll get into in a minute, in these four types of conflict, um, you know, we can treat our spouse respectively, re- respectfully while we are working through whatever's going on for us. What are the four types of conflict? And tell us a little bit about them. Sure. So Gottman says that there's four types of conflict. And I, I'm a Gottman trained therapist, so I do align with these. Um, but the first one would be volatile. So we talked a little bit about that before where, you know, you, we all know that couple that will fight really passionately. They have a lot of passion and energy behind their, their words and their, their body language. Um, conflicts can erupt easily, right? They're triggered. They let their partner know they fight on a grand scale. Um, but of course, making up can be even greater. Um, these typically are people who are very passionate and have frequent and passionate arguments. So, even if, you know, to a third party, something might seem small, at least, you know, this particular type of um, couple might, you might just see them be like, what the heck? Are you, are you, are you crazy? What's going on? Right. Um, the second would be validating. So these are the couples that fight very politely. They're very calm during their conflicts. Uh, they behave like collaborators. I can say to- this as a Jewish person. I don't feel like these people are Jewish. Yeah, I, 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 this is not how my husband and I fight. Okay, these are not Jewish people. No, this is not how my husband and I fight. We all know, and you know, we're Jewish too, right? Yeah, right. And so, oh yeah, and so you know, I also think too, like, think of this as kind of like work, right? Um, We have a conflict at work, and we're like super calm, but there are couples that actually fight like this. um, Per my last email, yeah, 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 which is really really, they fight like this, actually. Yeah. Okay. you know, we kind of see this, um, I don't like to generalize, but in this case, this is oftentimes what we see in some older generations where marriage was a little bit more of a survival. Um, but you know, it's, it's when we all kind of know this one person or couple that would fight like this, if you really think hard, but these couples are really good at compromising and they also seek to work out their problems steadily. Um, these people are probably not the most impulsive people you've ever met, right? Right. Um, they're probably people that have a much more methodical. They're not letting their emotions lead the day by any stretch. Correct. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. They're like, like yeah, more methodical, more like thinkers in their head. Correct. And maybe oh. if you have a couple of, you know, pe- two people like my husband who process individually and then come together, um, that might be like that. The other one is conflict avoiding, which is rarely arguing. They completely avoid confrontation when they discuss their conflicts. Um, They do so very mildly and carefully. Um, And they don't feel that there is too much to be gained from getting angry. So we find this common, or what they find in common typically is that their connection point 
and the common ground in their marriage outweighs their differences. So essentially what their core belief might be about marriage would be that, you know what, it doesn't really matter. Like, I'm not going to sweat the small stuff. Um, I identify this in other couples often because I, this is definitely not me or my spouse, I believe. Um, it's like, um, I, I will notice that like, there'll be something that will occur between the two of them, maybe at a dinner that like between my husband and I would be something that would end up being a conversation. Um, and like, I can tell that they're probably never going to discuss it. And like, there's just more weight being put on like the general goodness of their like partnership with each other. And like, it's not, they're not going to talk about it. Yeah. Unless it's like really bad. Yeah. And I think, you know, this goes back to our personal values, you know, something that might be really irritating for another couple may not be irritating for a, another couple. Right. And again, exactly. that goes back to who are we at our core? Who have we been in our past and who are we today? What are we actively working on? Right. If I'm actively working on um, feeling more connected with my husband, you know, maybe a mishap for me where he did all of these other things that really showed me he was working on connection. Maybe it doesn't matter. Because maybe I'm hyper-focused on, is he working on the things that we discussed to increase connection? So I right. It- so I guess, yeah. I mean, on the other side of that coin, I've seen other people witness something occur between my husband and I, where I can tell they would be getting into an argument probably about it. And I'm, or he is just kind of like letting it go. It's not, this is something that works for us. It's okay if it doesn't work for you. So there can be like components of that, I think, maybe for everybody. I agree. And I think we have to think of life as seasonal. So if we go back to this newborn stage, like you were talking about at the beginning, our goal the first year after having a child is to re-regulate and survive and keep our child alive and keep our child as regulated as possible. That's our goal. So in the first year of marriage, something that might happen may not be as big of a deal as it was before. Or maybe now your husband doing something out of, you know, out of what you need from him, not taking out the trash now may be a bigger deal because we don't have the energy to take out the trash ourselves. It depends on where you are, right? So if you're pregnant, you can't just take out the trash. It's like a little bit different. Right. Um, or something's going on. But often when I'm not pregnant, I'm not real. I'm like, well, that, you know, it's not something that you're going to remember necessarily all the time. It's okay. So it kind of just like depends on where you're at. Right. And I think something that's really important to remember is that even though our nervous systems tell us that something is completely and utterly urgent, most of the time things are not life or death. Ooh, I love that. We got to repeat that. (laughs) Even, even though our nervous systems may tell us that something is urgent, most of the time things are not life or death. Correct. And so if we're already in survival mode after we give birth and we're sleep deprived, we're hangry, and we haven't had a chance to shower in a while, um, (laughs) you know, our nervous system starts to think that any type of perceived threat, and notice I say perceived threat because we have to work within our own perception, um, any sort of perceived threat can seem very excruciatingly urgent. Like, oh my gosh, he didn't flip the laundry. That must mean he hates me and doesn't love me anymore. <laughs> and right. that this is never going to work. And our house Think is going to be every... a disaster forever. Yeah. Yes. The hills that I've died on when I have a newborn baby are just like absolutely insane. Like, I mean, like the tiniest thing. I, it, everything oh, yeah. seems huge. 
Oh it's yeah. It's a huge deal. You didn't clean out this like one bottle, you know, I just, oh my God, you know? Yeah. yeah. And irreconcilable really- differences. It's going to say like bottle not cleaned out on Tuesday last week. Like it feels right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so I think this is also where it's so vital that we know our triggers and it's okay if after a new having a baby, your triggers are different. You know, it's okay for my personality. I'll give you just a little personal example of I'm okay. If I, my rule of thumb is I need to be able to find something in under two minutes. That means I'm organized. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So okay. for my husband, organization means something different. It means everything is exactly where it's supposed to be all the time. Right. And so I remember having our first baby and him coming in and we had a house that was too small and not very functional at all. And there was just crap everywhere. And, yeah. you know, it's like in those moments, is the house going to change? No, I was too exhausted to clean it. Um, he was too exhausted to clean it, but what we could come together on is, Hey, I wonder if maybe, you know, we could just categorize things in ways that work for us for now. Great. We talk about it. We talk about our triggers. I'm triggered that this house is messy. This is temporary. Um, and yes, here's a bin. I'm going to throw all of the bottles in so that the bottles are just not strewn across the kitchen. Yeah. There's nothing worse than the kitchen covered in bottles. Like it's just <laughs> horrible. It's like- so, and so that leads us to this last type of conflict, which is hostile. Um, and that's when we're starting to incorporate for the four horsemen as Gottman calls them. And that includes criticism. So like, oh my gosh, you're a terrible person. Contempt, like just holding grudges, um, resentments, right? Defensiveness. So like, an example of defensiveness could be like, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. And a husband or partner, partner B saying, well, why, why would you be, why? <laughs> like, you shouldn't like, feel that way. The opposite uh, of empathy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and typically that comes from a place of, of trigger, you know, being triggered. And in exhaustion, we see a lot of criticism, right? And we see a lot of these things. Um, and then the last one is stonewalling, like just ignoring our partner. Um, and so if we're in the hostile state, which, you know, there's going to be criticism sometimes in marriage, there's going to be some contentment, right? Like, you know, in the newborn phase, I remember like, I mean, there, I could have listed a whole thing of like things I could be contempt about. Um, like you said, um, you know, the defensiveness of like, you know, this is a new experience. Like, I don't know how to take care of this kid. Um, and then someone comes in and says, well, why is the baby crying? Like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I've done everything like, and it could lead to something just really going downhill. Um, and so you're both so thoroughly invested in like this child getting some sleep that it can be very easy for you to both start criticizing each other about how you're trying to go about making that happen as opposed to like, I remember walking in very high. Exactly. Like I remember walking in being like, why are you holding the baby that way? That's why she's screaming. And he's like, what? Like, yeah, exactly. He's like, I think you need to wouldn't beat. say otherwise, but just like you, my entire life is in your hands. If you don't do this the right way, I'm not going to be able to get my sleep. This feels right. very urgent. Right. And so I think a better way, you know, if I could tell my past self or give her a little bit of advice and maybe some sleep, I probably would have said something like, is there anything I can do to help? And he may have said no. And then letting things be as they are, because in the end of the day, 90% of problems are not fixable. Yes. And I love that that's not a bad thing. I love that statistic. They're not fixable. It's just about learning to work with each other around them. 
And for listen. me, it's about, yes, go ahead. Listening. Well, it, it, and when I talk about listening, I'm saying active listening. So that means we're in each other's energy fields. Our bodies are turned toward each other. We are listening and taking mental notes of what our partners are saying instead of listening to respond. If we are listening to, if we're listening to respond, then we're going to sound defensive and we're going to sound critical. But if we turn toward each other, we maybe even if we're, you know, really tired or something, even holding each other's hands can connect us in a way that helps us not have to do so much emotional work. <laughs> um well, but when you're reconnecting with somebody like that, like you're holding, it's like it changes the rhythm of the conversation. 100%. You can't really like scream at each other when you are like holding hands. Right. And so active listening includes paraphrasing. So I might say something like, you know, I'm exhausted. The kitchen's a mess. The laundry hasn't been done. And my husband might look at me, turn toward me. He puts away his phone. We're not looking at TV. We're not looking at our phones. We're not, we're, we're telling our children if we have more than one, like, hey, I'm going to take a minute with mom here. And we turn toward our partner and we say, I'm hearing that you're really overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes yeah. that's enough to have all of our dopamine and good oxytocin chemicals come back and just be like, you know what? I'm not alone. Right. I'm not, I'm not alone. And like, you can see me because that's what most people, that's what we really want in those times of conflict. It's like, do you see me? Do you hear me? Do you care about my needs? Exactly. And especially after having a baby, it, I can't speak for every woman, but a common theme that I've come across and that was true for me personally was that I had to start re-answering the question of who am I? Absolutely. So, I have another episode on here that's about like, you know, every time I have a child, I'm somebody, I'm somebody else, somebody else emerges. It's the yeah. whole self-discovery process that happens after we have a kid. Yeah. So if we have a partner that can lovingly turn toward us and just listen and let us, let, let us know that they hear us, oftentimes that is all we need to just, you know, get through this hiccup or get through this season and work collabor collaboratively together. Um, I think one of the things that I hear a lot of couples come into my office and say is, well, we need to work on communication. Well, what does that actually mean? I think what most people are actually saying is I just need to feel understood. You're never in the therapist's office talking about, um, the laundry, like the, the clothes being left in the dryer. You're talking about <laughs> the feelings underneath it. It's never yeah. like the exact, it's never the specific thing that's happening. And the it's themes the of showing up it. for each other. And those right. themes are going to shift and change over time. Did you talk about stonewalling yet? It's the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. Stonewalling. Stonewalling. Um, I'm done with this conversation. See you later. <laughs> okay. And like, completely. Oh my God. Yeah. Completely. The other down. Just like, wow, I have no one to talk to. Um, it's, right. And stonewalling, you know, that's why it's so important. Like you said, when John Gottman brings up, um, I can't talk about this right now. Let's talk but about this on Friday. Yes. <laughs> right. Because otherwise it's kind of just like stonewalling. It's a complete shutdown, emotional, physical, energetic self. I will say I've gotten really good at saying, you know, I am so, I, I am so triggered right now. I can't discuss this at this very moment, but I really mm -hmm. want to talk about it with you. It's very important to me. Yeah. Um, here's the time where I'm going to be able to do it. 
Yes. Does that and work I, for you? Yes. And I also want to say here, if we're in a state of overwhelm or survival mode, which is fight, flight, freeze, fawn, mm-hmm. it can be very hard to access words. <laughs> so it's yeah. okay to walk away without words for a little bit and then just come back <laughs> and say, okay, here's what happened. My nervous system felt like this. My, you know, my heart was racing. My, I, I couldn't see straight, yeah. um, you know, that tunnel vision. It's okay if we don't have words for this immediately. Yes. Which Amen. is why going back with kids, it's okay to model that. So if there's going to be conflict, model the repair later too. Yes. I love that. Model the repair. That's such a good piece of advice. Like if we get into conflict with our spouse in front of our children, show them what it looks like to repair that conflict. I always, if anybody ever watched Dr. Phil like once in the nineties or early two thousands, which is so funny because of how, like how different he used to be than, than what his show is now. But he used to repeat, he used to look at the camera and repeat, like, do not argue in front of your children. I remember seeing him say that when I was like 13 and thinking like, yeah, like my parents need to get that memo, like how important (laughs) it is and like how, like how destructive it is to argue in front of your children. And that was like the, that was what we needed to hear then. Like, I think societally, that was where we were. I mean, people were really screaming at each other probably in front of their children. Um, and it was really destructive and we were just finding that out. That was what the research was, sh- was showing us was how destructive it is to children. But now we're somewhere else. We've evolved. Okay. You're going right. to have conflict with your partner. Here's how to do it effectively. And let's show our children what it looks like to um, repair what's going on. So maybe they know how to do that with their sister or brother or somebody that they get into conflict with later. Of course. And I always say that healthy conflict includes you know, includes I needs and I feel statements. Yeah. Ooh, if we're I like using yeah. I needs and I feels, we're not using the word you. <laughs> and you <laughs> leads to criticism, right? Yeah. Um, and mm. so if we can avoid criticism, avoid contentment, and sometimes contempt means we're withholding information that's vital for the conflict. So it's really important that in order to avoid contentment, we're just sharing our authentic selves in that moment. Like That's you beautiful. said, right yeah. now I'm overwhelmed and I can't do this. Yeah. Here, here's how I'm feeling. Sometimes I'll just start like saying out loud what I'm feeling. This is what's happening for me right now. Like sometimes you were talking about like with fight, fight, freeze or fawn, like we lose words. I find myself just being like, okay, I'm just going to like spitball like what it is that's going on in my head right now. Like that's the best I can do. Yeah. Um, And it works. I mean, it works better than not saying anything at all, for sure. Right. And so like the other day when I was in a conflict with my husband, I was like, I feel like I'm going to crawl out of my skin. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm in in an enclosed space. I need some fresh air. (laughs) This was me with my children this weekend. I'm like 25 weeks pregnant. And like I, it is so fascinating. I feel the same way right now that I did it about 35 weeks pregnant with my other two pregnancies. I mean, it's crazy to me that I'm only 25 weeks because just the exhaustion and like the fatigue and my body feeling like so sore and tired. And I, I was home with both of them and I, I, I like just couldn't move. And I just found myself repeatedly saying like, I'm having a really hard time right now. I feel like I've gone up the stairs 12 times. I'm going to lie down like <laughs> just to avoid like completely freaking out. I'm just saying like, this is what's happening for me right now. Here's a little narration. I can't exactly. move anymore. 
And that's great because you know what you didn't do? You didn't go into shame and blame, right? (laughs) When we go into all or nothing, we go into shame and blame. Like, I can't believe I can't handle this. Um, Or gosh, why aren't you here? You're not here for me in the way I need you to be. Um, You know, and those are nice ways of saying things. But typically we talk really meanly to ourselves when we're shaming and blaming. And so as long as we can have conflict, have conversations, re-regulate, a lot of times in conflict, the goal is just to re-regulate and then get to enter each other's worlds. Like what's really going on behind the scenes in your mind right now? Which is why it's so important to know that in these high pressure stages, like the newborn stage, that when regulation is harder to come by to be really compassionate with ourselves and with each other, because you were saying it's temporary and regulation is um, more difficult and things feel urgent when they're not. I mean, if I could have gotten, if anybody could have written me a letter when I had my firstborn, I wish it would have said that. Like, hey, objects in mirror are like larger than they actually are in real life. Like, please, oh my gosh, don't yes. worry. <laughs> it's yes. going to be okay. Yeah. Yes. And I always tell new moms, I say, look, you're not going to solve the, the world's problems in the first year of motherhood. No, you are not. So stop comparing yourself to people who maybe appear like they are. Because right. they definitely don't have a new baby. And I promise you, if there's a con- an issue now, <laughs> that's a theme, yeah. it will be there when you have energy to actually you. tackle it. Exactly. Exactly. So-, so before we conclude, because this has been such a wonderful, like insightful conversation, which I hope has helped any of you who are listening, I want to go back to the beginning before we got into talking about conflict and establish what some of those tools are that we have to use aside from date night, which as you were saying, if your love language is not quality time, date night's great, but it's certainly not this be all end all. Um, what are, what are the tools that we have to really nurture that connection to put money in the bank? As I like to say, um, um, when it comes to our relationship with our partner, with our, with, with our partner, with our spouse. So you were talking about knowing your partner's love language and knowing your own, um, yeah, really intentionally connecting, maybe physically like touching each other. This doesn't have to be sex, grabbing each other's hand, giving each other a hug when you walk in. Um, acknowledging the things that our partner does well, even when it seems small, even when it's putting the toilet seat down, because what you focus on grows and making an effort to acknowledge that. And what else can we add to our list of things that we can do every day? Yeah. So doing things that are in alignment with our love languages, I think would be a good recap of that. Um, the other thing, the other, there's two more things that really come to mind. And the, the second one is stop triangulating when you do have alone time. Babies are around all the time. You know, we made that beautiful nursery. I don't think my kids slept in it for a year. Um, I get that. <laughs> you know, like, I get that there is very little alone time, but stop triangulating when you do have those small moments. Put the phone away. Eliminate technology. Don't turn toward the TV if you can. Right. Try to play games with each other. Try to turn toward each other. Try just to be in each other's presence. Um, and so establishing energy boundaries around the two of you. You know, I have two kids now. So if there's something that needs my attention or my husband, you know, comes home, I try to make a very intentional effort to say, I'm so glad you're here. And he says the same thing. And we have just a moment of connection to re, you know, re-enter after the workday. So stop giving your energy to things that are not in alignment with what you value and what your goals are. If your goal is connection with your spouse and your goal is to be seen and heard by your spouse, then set up your environment in the best way you possibly can in whatever season you're in for that to happen. 
Um, I used to notice that if the TV was on, my husband walked in the door, it was like so much noise. I would just be so overwhelmed with the kids. So I make it very intentional that like my space reflects what I need. If I know my husband's going to come home or vice versa, I have the kids, you know, um, do the activity. They get excited. Dad's going to come home. Um, but they know that dad's going to come over to me and talk to me and then he's going to greet them. Um, and so creating that energetic space around the two of you, um, also making life work for you. We're going to be strung out in motherhood, um, at the beginning, especially, but doing everything you can to try to regulate yourself as many times a day as you can. So one of my tricks that I share with my clients is every time I walk through a doorway, I take a deep breath out. Our bodies breathe in for our, our bodies are going to breathe in automatically. But what we need in order to re-regulate our vagus nerve is our out breath has to be longer than our in breath. So before you get with your partner, um, try to regulate yourself because you're going to have a deeper, more authentic connection if you're regulated and they are as well. Is this Um, something you feel like every time you get home? I actually, so I, every time, even in between clients, every time I walk through a door, I do a a body scan check-in. It takes me three seconds, um, but I remind myself to breathe out. Oh, I Um, love it. I'm doing it right now. I feel so calm. Amazing. The other, you know, along with making your life work for you is incorporating time into your routine that works for you. So if you know baby's going to maybe sleep five minutes, put the baby down and just connect, right? Do something for two or three minutes that actually works for you and your spouse. Oh, I love that. It can be any time of day. It doesn't have to be even a half an hour. It can be just five minutes. Um, it can it can be that five minutes where, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it can be just five minutes and it can be just that five minutes where the baby is willing to be put down for a second without um, needing anything from you necessarily. And that that time is temporary. It is not forever. Yeah. You will sleep again. You, <laughs> you will sleep again one day. You um, will. One day. But, will but yeah. Incorporating that time into your routine the best you can. Because if we think about it, five minutes here and there add up, adds up really quickly. And when they're good minutes, you know, like when they are intentional, kind minutes that you have with each other. Um, it's wonderful to hear how just these small actions can make such a big difference and that we don't need these huge sweeping gestures that many of us are told we do need. Um, no, we don't. Um, it's really much simpler than that. And um, I think so much of this also comes down to what was modeled for us um, when we were growing up. I think so many of us have the best intentions for our families, for our relationships with our spouses, and we have absolutely no idea what that looks like, which is why for me, I know therapy has been an incredibly valuable tool in my life. Like, my entire adult life, especially when I had children. Um, I think it goes without saying that children, if we had um, a challenging or traumatic childhood, are going to bring up a lot of that trauma, even if we think we've already healed it. And um, it is very easy for that trauma to become something that we project onto our spouse. Um, And to have the help, outside help of having a therapist um, for ourselves to work work through some of that trauma um, is has been absolutely instrumental in my life. Um, and to heal those wounds and understand how I can work through conflict constructively and model that for my children and let go of some of the scary things that happened to me when I was a child. Um, I can't, I can't stress enough how valuable that's been. 
I agree. And I think that goes back to parenting and partnering from a place of empowerment instead of fear. Right. And so, yes, having a traumatic childhood, not having our needs met, whatever that means for anyone individually does affect the way we parent. And like you said earlier, awareness is key because it takes more effort to build a new neuron pathway to do something differently than we the way we were taught as a child. So if you don't have the energy to do it new and different, just wait. Wait until you have a little bit more energy to actually do it because it will come out so much better if we can put the attention and time it deserves um, in solving whatever conflict it is or even attending to the conflict, as I like to say. That is a fantastic piece of advice. I absolutely love that. And also just the possibility that like a new pathway is, is so is possible and available. Um, and also it doesn't have to happen right now. Um, and like there is like give yourself the time and space that you need. Um, of course. And the example I use for that is, you know, in Houston, I live in Houston and it's taken forever to build this new overpass from 610 to 59. Ooh, things it, I don't miss, man. Yeah. <laughs> but like it took so much effort to build that. Right. But now that it's open, it's like I can just speed through it and it's great. That's how our oh, brains work good. too. I'm so glad they finished that. That's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> but that's how our brains work too. Once that, once we use these new ways of doing things enough, it will become easier to go through. Yeah. So hang in there. You know, if you're trying a new behavior, if you're doing something that was never modeled for you, it was definitely never modeled to me to actively go out of my way to acknowledge somebody's efforts, to notice something that they were doing right. It was almost the exact opposite. I'm going to notice the tiniest thing that you're messing up right now, and I'm not going to let it go. And it's going to be constant. So like, it almost feels like I'm doing, it, it has felt like I'm doing something wrong by like going out of the way and like actually acknowledging something that you're doing really well. So it's going to feel really awkward and strange and it's going to get more and more comfortable. It's not going to stay awkward and strange. Exactly. Just like motherhood. Yes, exactly. It does. (laughs) It gets easier. It's amazing. I was thinking about this last night that Malcolm Gladwell said it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in something. And I was like, Oh, then I, then I get to be, I'm calling myself an expert in this because my goodness, I, how many hours <laughs> have I been a mother for? Like I just, it does, it does, it gets easier. You start to like, things become second nature that when you first became a parent, um, we're just like, oh my God, how am I ever going to do this? And now it's just part of my life. Um, and I notice that when I get around my friends who haven't had kids or who don't want kids or haven't had them yet, um, like just the way my routine is and like how different it is and and just these things that now feel totally normal in my life. But at one point they were so foreign and and scary. I agree. And I can't speak for you, but I know a little bit about you, but you know, I think as we, I think the practice of motherhood, honestly, if I were to put it in a nutshell is learning how to tune into our intuition instead of tuning out and doing the things that work for us and our children in whatever season of life we're in. Um, and for me, yeah, it's like peeling back the, like, I think about starting out as a mother, like my day one was literally the opposite of what you just described. Like, I'm going to read every book and I'm going to not trust a thing that I think, and I'm going to feel totally ignorant, um, and feel like I don't have anything to offer. And I was, I was again, 27, but I felt very strongly in all these directions. Um, and, and for me, this process that I've now been in for five and a half years has been just this giant, like peeling of the onion, like coming back to what I always knew and coming back to like trusting myself. 
Exactly. And that's that's honestly the key to motherhood, in my opinion, is learning who we are, learning who our partners are, learning how to work together and work and, and work towards put effort towards things that actually are in alignment with what works for you and your partner and your kid at the time. It's beautiful. Oh, Dr. Elizabeth Miller, it is always such a pleasure to have you on this show. And I get to announce that you are now, um, you have your own practice called Well Mind Body, which I am so proud to have done your website for. It's now live at wellmindbody.co. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your practice? Sure. So I've been in private practice for a long time um, and I've had Elizabeth Miller therapy for a long time, but I am, I launched Well Mind Body, which is really the educational resources behind what we do. So my goal with Well Mind Body is to help people, again, tune into their own intuition, heal themselves, right? Build community, learn what they need to know so that they can optimize their own health and wellness. Um, You know, like you said, right, with your first kid, I think it's so overwhelming. There's so much information out there. And Well Mind Body was built to fill that gap of just integrative, um, health and wellness. And that includes integrative psychotherapy. It includes, um, you know, how can we take care of ourselves? How can we take care of our marriages, our, our kids? And so there's going to be a lot more to come. I cannot wait. Um, but yes, that's the gist of it. Well, Mind Body will be a resource to anyone who is looking to feel better and live optimally. I can't wait to hear more about all that unfolds for you um, and have you back on this podcast again and again, and as I've always loved to. And anyone who gets to work with you is just so lucky. Thank you again for sharing your wisdom with us today. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. You've all been listening to Look Ma No Hands. I'm your host, Laura Max-Rose, and I look forward to joining you again next time. I hope you liked that last episode of Look Ma No Hands. Feel free to take a screenshot, share it with a friend, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear it. If you want all the Look Ma No Hands updates, follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose. I look forward to joining you again next time.